Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview series. And today I am absolutely thrilled to have Alistair Diaz join the conversation. Alistair, welcome. Thank you very much, Melissa. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolute pleasure. Now, this series is, uh, is titled No More Secrets. Extraordinary leaders share their journey from good to great. And Alistair, just initially, what I'll do is I'll just touch on your bio so people have a sense of who I'm talking to, and then we'll get into our conversation. So Alistair Diaz joined Google Cloud as the Vice President for Australia and New Zealand in July 2021 and is responsible for partnering with companies of all sizes to accelerate their digital transformation strategies. Alistair is a strong advocate for gender equality and is a pay equity ambassador with the Workplace Gender Equality Agency in Australia. Prior to Google, Alistair led a number of businesses for VMware across Asia Pacific and Japan uh, and also Australia and New Zealand. He's a, he was a global executive sponsor for VMware's Disability Power of Difference community, where he championed an exclusive culture across the company. Alistair, an incredible track record uh, in all for, forms of diversity. It's wonderful to have you here. Firstly, for anyone in our audience who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, and I might just pause even before I hand to you and say, that um, a wonderful colleague of mine that I worked with sort of 25, 30 years ago, um, who knows you very well, actually suggested we speak. So you come with the highest recommendation from my own personal network. So um, I would love you to tell us and share with the audience, you know, who you are as a human being and, and what your own sort of personal and leadership journey has been like. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, look, I'm, I, I'll, I'll be brave and, and, and share um, early life through to now as, as concisely as I can. Um, I'll say before I do it is this is the first time in my life that I'm sharing um, these parts of my journey. Because um, it's, it's probably the first time in my life I've felt um, brave enough and comfortable enough to do it. So... Um, such a, uh, such a privilege, yeah. Alistair. Thank you. The message for, I, I guess, um, anyone in the audience is don't, don't wait till you're later in life to, to do this because, I, you know, uh, uh, I'm at that, that other end of my career now. So, yeah, look, so the journey is, uh, you know, born, born in India uh, to parents of mixed descent uh, between Indian, Portuguese and uh, English. Um, and... Uh, Unfortunately, lost my mother when I was seven over there. Uh, we moved to Australia in, uh, in the mid-70s. Um, and one of the things that happened as a result of that, that uh, loss in our family was my father just really struggled uh, mm. to deal with it. So we found ourselves in a new country. Uh, we found ourselves at school uh, where my sisters and I were um, only one of four children in the whole school that had brown skin. Right. And uh, you know, and you, and when you're kind of ten years old, you, uh, um, you know, we were called every name under the sun, and and you know, had to kind of quickly work out how to um, assimilate and adapt. And uh, because my dad didn't really cope that well, we we moved around. We you know rented from house to house to house, and uh, you know, I found um, different ways, I guess, to kind of navigate through life in that what I would say a difficult period and uh, when I turned 15 he he was very sick and he was hospitalized and uh, needed to 
be looked after for a long time. So uh, we rented, we didn't have any money. And so I picked up the newspaper and um, found a job and I, I left school uh, mm. in, in year 11. And uh, got a job in the city in Melbourne uh, in a bookstore as a retail uh, clerk, so to speak. And, um, you know, that was it. Um, and my very first pay packet uh, was $98. And uh, our rent was $95. Oh, wow. And, uh, so we got some help from family and, and, you know, we got some help from the Salvation Army who I, you know, will always donate to given any opportunity. And we navigated through that. And I found myself as a 15-year-old, you know, I, I guess ensuring my siblings were ready for school and jumping on the bus and going to work. And, you know, that was, uh, that was life back then. And so um, during the bookstore uh, job, I, I learned um, to make some money in different ways, um, importing records, making mixtapes, diff different things to just make some cash on the side. And um, finally discovered that there was an opportunity to um, do an IT course, a six month IT course at, at a place called Control Data. And basically the advertisement was, you know, come and do this and we'll guarantee you a job in IT at the end of it. And it didn't matter if you had your, your final year of high school or in any other credentials. And so now the challenge was, because we had no money, is I couldn't really just stop working and go and do that. So I ended up doing it part-time over 12 months. Mm -hmm. And I worked at night. And I worked at night in something called a magic market, which is similar to a 7-Eleven. And it was kind of nice in a way, because there was always a few hours where it was just so quiet that I was able to get my study done and, and, and keep up with it. And then, you know, occasionally I'd go and do um, odd jobs, like even work in a, you know, in a butchery and just horrible jobs that, you know, that they, but they paid good cash and they kind of helped us get through that period. Um, and then sure enough, you know, when uh, the course finished, uh, we, you know, we were put in front of different companies to be interviewed. I did three different interviews and was offered three different jobs. And guess which one I took? The one that paid the most, right? So even think about, you know, which would take me further in life or anything like that. But luckily it was a small company in East Melbourne and a software development company. Um, you know, they'd hired two of us from Control Data and they hired two university students. And so the four of us were there and, you know, the CTO of that company showed extreme bias towards the university students, mm -hmm. um, which was, my, I guess, my first, apart from life to that point, it was my first workplace experience of both conscious and unconscious bias. Um, my friend, who was the other controlled artist student, um, who were friends to this day, we could see it. We could see that we were treated a bit differently so our, our decision was to, to work harder, to stay later at the office and um, outshine those, those two people. And at the end of the first year, the company actually hit a bit of a tough time. So they had to make some reductions and they kept Tash and I, and they let go of the two others. Brilliant. Which was interesting. Well so, uh, and then uh, nine years later, um, I became the general manager of that company and Tash was the general manager of the Southeast Asian business. So it was a great journey that, um, you know, we developed software, we supported software, 
Um, and then we moved into sales and marketing and we, we had good leaders who believed in us and, you know, really developed us. And it was basically that first job in the IT industry and, you know, getting a real paycheck um, just changed my life. And, 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 you know, it was no coincidence that, you know, I met my now wife um, back then as well. So we're kind of 37 years later now. Um, and it was just life was good, you know, it went really well. Um, but what I realized was with that company, I was a big fish in a small pond. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started to get privy to the big, the bigger, you know, particularly American uh, big tech companies in the late 80s, early 90s that like, you know, the Oracles, the Microsofts, the Cisco's and so on. And I could see that that was in a different league, you know, it was like selling to the big corporates and, uh, you know, so I decided, you know, it, it, it's time to kind of stretch myself and go and try and do something else. And I applied for a, a job at a company called Computer Associates, who, who at the time had a skyrocketing share price and just exorbitant, you know, they, to give you an idea of the money this company had or how they spend their money, they had 70 odd salespeople around Australia, New Zealand, and they flew every salesperson to Sydney every Monday. Oh, and so the Kiwis and the and the uh, Perth people were allowed to come in on Sunday evening. Um, the rest had to do the red eye and you know leave and head back home that night. Yes. And so that was just one of the nu numerous um, things they did to you know um, to um, spend the money they had. I guess so. That was um, when I applied for that role. Um, they set up the interview, and then on the day of the interview. I got a call and they said, look, we're really sorry. You don't have enough big company experience. So um, we're, we're rejecting you effectively. Um, now, because of the upbringing, I guess I had, I, I just jumped in my car and drove down there and walked into reception and asked for the hiring manager. And, uh, you know, an hour later, I was offered the role. And so four, hour, four years later, I found myself in Computer Associates Brat Pack, and their Brat Pack was their top performing salespeople who they would fund an MBA for, and they would put us on the track to leadership. But I started again as a seller there, but just at the higher end of town. Mm. Uh, the next part of the journey was uh, EMC, and EMC was a high-end um, high storage and data protection company. Uh, and I loved the value proposition of the company, but the most outstanding thing about EMC in 2000 was their customer satisfaction was 98%. Perfect. Was, you know, you, you had, you know, and so having the, again, the upbringing and the, the tough strategic sales experience at Computer Associates as well, it really, um, it really served me well at EMC. And, but I started again, I started as an acquisition seller. So nobody cared that you were a GM or you've done all these great things in the past, you started again. Mm. Uh, the rookie of the year in 2000 for uh, my performance. Uh, I was then given big, big uh, corporate accounts like ANZ Bank and Telstra. And then a leader, and, but I want to say to you that in those last few years at CA and at EMC and the first few years at EMC, leadership roles were coming up and they were being advertised and I applied for them and I always came second or third. Okay. And the, there were different reasons for it in my head. I was like, I'm not part of the boys club or I haven't been here long enough or I'm doing such a good job as a seller that they want to keep me there. So they're the things that were going through my head. 
but then the job for to run EMC New Zealand as a country manager came up and I, I put my hat in the ring and came second. Right. And, uh, you know, I thought I'll keep going, you know, because uh, I think now about the number of people that get really upset when they've applied for their first leadership role and they don't get it. Mm-hmm. And so the journey was there was just keep going, you know, keep doing your job. And um, then I got called and said, look, the person who took the New Zealand role has pulled out. This job's yours if you want it. You know, now my wife knew I was um, inquiring about it, but she was actually quite relieved when I didn't get it because we had three kids under five. And, you know, the prospect of moving to New Zealand, just the two of us. And you know, so, so I managed to sell her on the idea. And, and, and you know, it was going to be an adventure. It was going to be for two years. And but deep down in my heart, I kind of knew that unless I can show this company what I can do as a leader, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go past it. And so it was a risk and it was, um, you know, it was just something I wanted to throw myself in. And uh, we went to New Zealand. Um, we had two and a half the best years of our lives, both as a family. And it was a defining moment in my career. Um, we quadrupled the size of the business. Um, we took market share from number from number six in the market to number two in the market, just by half a percent to Hewlett-Packard. And the managing director of um, EMC, David Webster, could see uh, that I had created a great culture, a great business, you know, implemented new things like distribution and partnering and so on. And he thought, he just said to me, he said, I need you in Sydney. And yeah. I need you to do something bigger. Now, my wife was always expecting us to head back to Melbourne. Mm. So I then had to sell her on the idea of let's go and do a couple of years in Sydney. It'll be fun. It's warmer. There's beaches, you know, et cetera. And so we went to Sydney and long story short, my roles uh, kept changing every two years. And, and uh, by, by uh, 2010, I became the country manager. Mm-hmm. By 2012, I became a vice president for the first time of EMC. Um, there was another big defining moment in my life in 2010. And that was uh, my kids were, you know, going along. And, and, and my, my daughter, who was 10 at the time, went off to school camp. Um, we'd actually made a decision then to take an opportunity in Singapore. Um, and paperwork was being signed at the time. And uh, we got a call. Uh, I got a call from my wife, very frantic, and Talia, my middle girl, had been helicoptered to the children's hospital from um, k Packing, which is a school camp. And we didn't understand. Uh, we're on the other side of town. And then so during peak hour, we had to drive across to Randwick and it was the longest drive of our lives. We're doing, but we, we, we were told she was helicoptered there and she's an emergency. Please get here as soon as you can. And when we got there, you know, no idea of what, with no idea of what had happened. No, no, they just said it's very serious. And so um, when we got there, you know, just probably the last thing we expected was she was on in the emergency room. Uh, Her face had had completely changed. And they told us that um, she was uh, paralyzed on the left side of her body uh, and uh, she'd had a stroke, which is a, you know, you, you, you think of strokes, you think, you know, it happens to adults and, and, and it doesn't happen to children. But the fact is that one in every 200,000 children have strokes. 
And um, the, the, we, in Talia's case, there was never any explanation. We seven neurologists later. Um, mm. She, uh, she, uh, yeah, she um, was didn't get back. I, I guess she was left with disability, and we didn't know for about twelve to thirteen weeks whether she would walk again. And so, uh, EMC and David Webster were wonderful. They they gave me three months to go and focus on the family. And so one of us would spend the night in the hospital while the, while the other looked after the other two and we'd, we'd on and clock off every night. And, you know, she stood again and she, um, you know, Tali is another story, but she, she ended up, um, you know, getting back into a horse riding um, still, but now with disability, um, she was asked to come and speak uh, at some of the fundraising events for, for the children's hospital with myself. Um, we'd made a, a bit of an impact because they asked us to do a little story on 60 minutes to to raise awareness and for the gold coin appeal and for us we wanted to raise awareness that children can have strokes and mm -hmm. the other thing we wanted was we we don't like the word stroke victim we wanted it to be we want people to think of people who've had strokes as stroke survivors not stroke victims okay and they, that was our you know that was the reason we agreed to do the story but for me, the leadership lessons through that journey were incredible because, you you know, when something bad happens to your child, there is mm -hmm. nothing worse. And especially as a, you know, as a parent, when there's nothing you can do about it. Um, so, uh, you know, I, a lot of people who knew me, uh, both at work and outside of work, were bombarding me with, you know, what's happening to Talia, what's happening to Talia. And we were so focused on her that it was almost like hard. So I put together a a group, an email group, and said, look, I'll send everyone an update every couple of days, which ended up being every couple of weeks of her progress through that yes. three months. One of the most amazing things that happened through that uh, process, Melissa, is people started to open up with me about mm -hmm. things on their lives, right, because of the way I shared what was going on. And there were people that I worked with that were, you know, two desks away, who had the most horrific things going on in their life. And I had no clue. Yeah. So that, that part of my life as a leader, I, you know, my daughter taught me three things because she, she's doing really well today. She's 23. She's about to finish university. She taught me about not sweating the little things. Mm. Uh, she, she taught me that um, perseverance and optimism are the two most, you know, if you want your child to have two things, yeah, there it is. Those two things get there. Mm. And then the third thing I learned is that everyone has a story. Yes. And often they're dealing with that story. They're coming to work every day and, and dealing with that story. And then, I, you know, if we had more time, if I told you a couple, you'd go, how did that person show up at work every day going through that, right? And <laughs> a lot of them about they didn't, you know, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't feel safe enough to share and so on. So it shows how much, you know, we have come uh, some way and, and people are opening up a bit more. So um, you learn leadership lessons from everything. Mm. And I'm really yeah. fortunate through, through my journey there that to, you know, particularly EMC were very generous with leadership development that came out of MIT, that came out of Harvard. And so whilst I didn't finish high school and I don't have a university degree, I feel I've had like amazing life and um, detailed training from very high caliber people through my whole journey. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'll stop, I'll pause there to see if you have any questions. I've got so, so many. I mean, firstly, um, 
Firstly, can I say, you know, again, what an absolute privilege for you to choose to share um, the story of your upbringing that I know you haven't shared before. And I'll, I'll circle back to that in a minute. But um, um, and also thank you for sharing. You did share with me a YouTube clip that we can make available to, to the audience if they're interested that just shares some of Talia's story, which was um, incredibly moving. So thank you for that. You know, a, a couple... I know every parent listening to this will have the same reaction in terms of, you know, you, you cannot even imagine unless you've been in that situation what, what that's like to have gone through. So our best to you and your family um, and to Talia. And great to hear that she's... Yeah, with you. Talia's 23 now. She's, um, while she has some disability, she's doing enormously... She's just out there looking for internships at the moment and she's... Um, she's uh, just been incredible she ended up going on to win Australian titles in a in a horse riding and she's she's just um incredible real inspiration to all of us well we might find it works the other way around the audience are asking for her contact details for the internship because if she's got some of her dad's qualities they're going to want to know about it so Alistair can I can I ask um you know, and it's it's so relevant because, as you say, everyone has a story and there's so many elements to people's stories that um, that people aren't comfortable sharing or they choose not to not to share. And, you know, so much of what I think is going on right now is, you know, we're really calling out for a period where, you know, authentic leadership, vulnerable leadership, bringing your whole self, um, you know, to the office is... Um, it's, I think, important and, and needed. Why did you choose to share your story now? And, and maybe that question really entails in it. What's held you back from sharing it before? Yeah, I, you know, the, 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 the thing that um, I found myself asking myself that because I've been sharing it a little bit more, even with my colleagues and peers now and feeling comfortable. So the first question of why share it I feel I have a responsibility to people who didn't, you know, aren't going through life the conventional way and maybe sitting there um, feeling like there is not, you know, they could never get to yes. the type of job that I've got. So um, I want to empower people to believe that, you know, it doesn't matter where they've come from or what they've gone through. And in fact, a lot of those bad things that happened to you earlier in life equip you with, you know, amazing things that will help you later in life. And I feel that 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 uh, did that, the fire, the resilience, all of those sorts of things. Um, so I felt I, I've been and, and it's come from um, one of the most important things that I'm experiencing at the moment with every customer and partner organization that I meet you know, they all talk about one of their biggest issues at the moment being skills, mm -hmm. capability, and talent retention, because there is a war for talent in this market. And, you know, we're talking to customers now about, you know, um, there is a pool of talent. They may not have finished university. And, and a good example is a colleague of mine that's build, building a security company out of Queensland. Um, He's taken it from, you know, two people to 200 people in the last couple of years. And one of the challenges he's got is, you know, the people with the experience of uh, high ticket, you know, expensive people, and they they wanted commodity, you know, they wanted yeah. by everyone. So he made a decision to, to go to people who've got trades or people that didn't finish high school or, you know, who are working in another industry 
and he said, look, I'll pay for your nine month cyber cybersecurity certificate at TAFE. And then I'll give you, you know, uh, another year of sort of development. And so that ended up being a two year kind of apprenticeship, but to be mm -hmm. in cybersecurity. And uh, he's bringing through um, people that are amazing. And he's experiencing um, fire and passion in them, but he's also experiencing loyalty. Mm. They're, not, they're not jumping ship as soon as they, you know, they think they're ready to get a bigger job for more pay. So, uh, you know, almost by necessity, because we're such a small market with war for talent, it had me thinking, I need to share my story because there are so many kids out there that have, you know, that have, have had a tough upbringing or found themselves in a situation where they're not, like I couldn't have even imagined I'd be here talking it to you today when I was 15. I, I was going to ask, when do you think you're, um, I mean, there's so many elements of that story that, you know, you talk about perseverance and optimism um, in your daughter. Um, I mean, I reflected back on all of the perseverance and optimism you shared as you went through that story and, and none better than jumping in your car. Um, you know, after being told they weren't going to interview you, you jumped in your car and went down there. I mean, goodness, any, any leader um, worth anything would hire that person um, in terms of doing the work and showing up. So you've got all that. But I just wonder at what point, you know, you, you, know, you were a very young man um, when that responsibility of caring for your whole family was sort of thrust upon you and and so there was a real, you know, I guess, need and drive for you to, to get out there and to, to make things work. When in that did you get a chance to think about you and to think about um, your future and your possibilities? Uh, look, there was probably always an element of that in the background. Um, mm -hmm. I probably had, a, you know, what have you got to lose attitude. Um, so that kind of helped me. But... One of my colleagues uh, at, at Google, actually, uh, Caroline Rainsford, who's our leader of our New Zealand business and just an outstanding leader, she came up with a term um, because she, she was standing in for Mel Silver, the managing director, whilst Mel was on um, maternity leave. And she described that experience. Uh, she described how she felt through that experience. And she used the term excitedly anxious. <laughs> And I kind of thought that sums up my whole career. That sums up how I felt all the, all the way through to where I am now. And excitedly anxious is good. It's not bad. It's good. Right? So it's good. And excitedly anxious means if, you, if you're feeling that, you, you are growing. But it's one thing to feel excitedly anxious. And, and, and a second thing is to then put your foot in the water, yeah. right, and do it, jump in, right? So if I reflect on the journeys, I, I've always felt excitedly anxious and something in me just pushed me to do it. And I've never considered myself to be a brave person. In fact, the opposite, I've never felt thought of myself as brave. Um, Part of excitedly anxious for me, not, not necessarily other people who use that term, was um, self-doubt, right? And, and so that was the big thing throughout the career. And I then realised that 
why is it that I have this self-doubt? Why is it that I'm not in the inner circle of the boys club? Why is it that, you know, I didn't come through the conventional way, yet I ended up getting that leadership role? And then I got the next why. Um, and my subconscious strategy in the early part of my leadership journey was to play the underdog. Okay. And, and so a very deliberate, you know, I'm going to be the underdog. People are going to underestimate me. And then I'm going to catch them by surprise, right? Mm. But I'm going to work harder and so on. So I kept using the underdog and it served me well personally in that early part of my career. Once I was made VP of, of EMC, I kind of hit a T intersection and it was like, I can't, use, I, I can't use this underdog card anymore. You know, it's actually not, it's going to, it's becoming a liability and I've got to start um, leading with gravitas. I was going to so ask you, define that for me. So, so then what is the difference um, when you say I now have to lead with gravitas? How did that, what was different about how you showed up once you made that decision? Yeah. Look, this is probably a, a good, good story for the audience as well, who, who sometimes um, are missing out on career opportunities and, you know, the self-doubt is there and, and maybe they haven't worked on themselves to exude gravitas I mean that word gravitas you know like there's got so many different connotations yes. but my my little story is that you know at one point I found myself doing a lot of the senior tasks at EMC but yet I was the sales leader and, and I actually had people saying to me why you're doing all this stuff but you're the sales leader and I wanted to get ahead and, I, and for the first time, actually, in my career, I started to feel a bit entitled and thought, yeah, I'm doing everything here. I should get this country manager role. And, you know, they're not giving it to me. And uh, we had a, I had a chat with my boss and he said, look, you know, you need to work on your gravitas. And he gave me a couple of examples. He said, whenever there's tension in the leadership team, you're the guy that wants to make it nice for everyone. And you use humor quite often to take the tension out and you want everyone to be at peace with each other. He said, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes let the tension play out, right? Because it'll take us somewhere further. It was a great lesson. And I, I had a, was lucky enough to have a coach at the time. And um, we said, let's work on gravitas. You know, so gravitas um, is something that can be learned and developed uh, in terms of techniques to prepare for meetings, um, how you show up in, in, in um, situations, how you listen, how you let tension play out, how you use your eye contact uh, and your body language. So there's lots of things that can be learned, how you present, et cetera, right? But that's only half the story. The other half is what's how you see yourself. And the lesson for me was um, I had developed a chip on my shoulder. I was a kid from the streets you know, 170 centimetres, in immigrant background. Um, I developed a bit of a chip on my shoulder that, that you know, the reason I'm not getting it is, you know, this is all subconscious. Yes. And David actually called it out. He said, you've got to... And, and so there was a pivotal moment where we went to see Westpac and we saw the IT executive team at Westpac. And um, the CTO of Westpac at the time was a, you know, an Indian man, similar height to me, he wore a turban, and but he was the most senior Westpac person in the room. 
and he commanded the room. He was very softly spoken. He listened. He asked some amazing questions, and you could, the you know, everyone in the room hung on his every word. And we walked back to the office after that meeting, and my boss said, "Do you think he had gravitas?" And I said, "Yes." And it was that little moment where I realised that ninety percent of my challenge was in my head, right? So it was it was the combination of realizing that I have to see myself as being um, deserving of being there. Uh, I have to see myself as being deserving of, of of that, but I also have to develop the skills and the techniques in how I show up. It's a combination of those, and becoming a vice president then became you know. But every time along the way, that an anxiously excited thing was always ticking off. I love that. I, I'm 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 going to shamelessly steal that. So thanks to your um, colleague, because I think that's wonderful. And it's interesting your description around not seeing yourself as a brave person, because often, you know, bravery is not. You know, it's it's doing something despite the fact that there's fear there, right? So if you're sitting in an excitedly anxious state as you move through your career, I'd say you've been pretty brave. <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, look, so it's been been quite the journey. And then, you know, I guess the, the, the VMware journey took me to a whole new place because when I left EMC, I thought, what am I going to, you know, what am I going to do better in this next role? And, you know, the good news at that one was people were seeing, a you know, a, a man in his lady, late 40s, whereas I kind of grew up at uh, EMC in the shadow of my boss. Yes. So it's, they're going to see a different person to the person that grew up at EMC and I'm going to do some things differently. And one of those things was, you know, I used to pay a lot of lift service to gender equality in the EMC role. And one of the things that happened there is that the leadership team, uh, one of the topics for discussion was job sharing. And uh, our marketing director at the time said, you know, we should really explore this and do this. And we talked about which roles. And I remember just very ignorantly saying, you know, there's only these roles. You can't, you, you can't, for example, have a leadership team member job sharing. Yes. She didn't talk to me for three weeks. And I didn't, I didn't even realize, right? So I sat down with her and said, hey, are we okay? And she said, look, you know, just really disappointed that you had, you were so close-minded to think that. And, and she had been thinking about starting a family. Her key lieutenant was also doing the same. And they kind of thought we could share this job. We could have our family and we could share the job. And I was completely ignorant to it. And, you know, to this day, um, male leaders trip over themselves like that, right? And um, so each time I, I kind of thought I'm going to get better. And, and one of the things about EMC and VMware is they're very engineering-led businesses. So actual female talent availability in the market is a real challenge. Mm -hmm. So went about doing a whole bunch of things um, systematically from being over and, and you know my my attitude was overcorrect even, okay. even if people aren't happy and one example of that was we had six uh, intern grad spots uh, and I said to the team I want six females grads and two of the male leaders in the team said they protested strongly because they'd been through the interview process and they said, well, we're going to miss out on the best grads. Right. And, and I said, 
they're grads. We can develop them. We can mold them. Six female grads, right? We ended up getting five out of six. Now, today there's organizations that would say, hey, that's not, you can't do that. You know, that's, yeah. you know, and so on. But for, for us, based on where we were at the time, we were never going to fix the problem or, or get better female representation unless we forced and overcorrected, right, wherever we could. And it was those, that time in the career where you're hearing stories of, you know, we will never see uh, a 50-50 workforce in our lifetime. And, you know, that stuff going on at home with my daughter and I, I just thought, no, you, you know, I want to see something in my lifetime and I certainly want my kids to to see something in their lifetime, right? So uh, we took it up by 60%, the female representation in VMware in the first, in, 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 in uh, a three-year period. Now, that was still not a big number, went from 16% to 26%, yes. right? Um, but again, something really interesting happened. You know, part of that process of recruiting and, you know, signing up with WGEA, becoming a, a pay equity ambassador, you know, we, we got pay equity between the genders in place in August 2017. Uh, it was a proud, proud month for me. Um, and then, you know, we, we did a lot of external events. So we spoke at women in leadership events. We, you know, we ran women, uh, female forums to try and attract talent. And um, I, I, I never forget, I, I was at one, you know, we were having some drinks at the end and a couple of Telstra female leaders came up and said, I you know, like what you're doing here and uh, how are you going with the journey? And I said, look, we're getting there. We, you know, we've got more women joining us. We've promoted quite a few to the leadership role and so on. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, look, we, uh, we, you guys had a bad reputation. And I said, what do you mean? She said, oh, you know, that VMware was a real boys club. And, you know, there were some really bad incidents. Now, this was 20... Uh, 2018 mm -hmm. and I and we dug into it and it was 2005 oh wow so but it shows you yes it shows you the legacy you know word spreads were in a small market a couple of bad behaviors has actually left the company with a you know an impression with female talent in the market that you don't go there because boys club bad culture 13 years ago, 13 years earlier. Absolutely. We've done so much since then. And again, by, by the way, you know, anyway, I won't go into it, but so it does show you that, you know, you, you, you've got to constantly be thinking about, um, you know, your culture and, and, and it's, and it's got to be genuine. And, you know, we found ourselves um, moving to a world where we were really attracting, you know, our people were attracting, female talent to the business and so on. So it was a great journey for me. And then coming to Google was like taking it to another level. So firstly, Mel Silver, who's an awesome managing director of Google, you know, her cross-functional leadership team of which I'm a part of, it's 67% uh, female, right? And it's awesome. And, uh, you know, and then, and then the training and the development uh, that you get at Google is incredible. And mm -hmm. I want to share one little example of, of an experiment that we're doing at the moment. I'm one of 500 people that around the world that are doing this. And it's unconscious bias training uh, with virtual reality. And so without going into you know, all the details, you are walking in the shoes 
of the person that's experiencing the unconscious bias with your 3D um, goggles. And, you know, a um, couple of examples is, you know, one character is a Hispanic character that, you know, came through a, a you know, community college interviewing with a couple of Ivy League um, uh, CEOs um, who were just sort of asking them, asking, so I'm that person asking me about my interests. I said, I play basketball. They said, oh, basketball, you'd be, we thought you'd like soccer, you know, just little, yeah. you know, little examples. But what, what the training does is it, it prompts you to, um, to make a decision about what to say or what to do next and so on. And in some cases, the character, you're in the shoes of a third party character who can see this behavior, but you're in a junior role. Do you speak up? Mm. How do you do it? Et cetera, et cetera. But it's probably the best training I've seen because we all get plenty of online training and, you know, some of it's ter terrific. But the ultimate, and you know, I realized this with my daughter, like I never thought about disability until it was close to home. You know, you know, you don't think about racism as much unless you're on a, your you're on the other end of it, right? So walking in the shoes is really important. And so, you know, even with the, the role as the exec sponsor for disability with VMware and some of the things we're talking about, I've taken a similar, not global role, but AUNZ role at, at, at Google. We're talking about things like, you know, let somebody spend a day in a wheelchair in mm. our office. Mm. When they in the kitchen and they can't reach the things that they want or they can't go to that part of the office, then they get a true understanding of accessibility right physical accessibility but then there's accessibility in our technology and all of those sorts of things so we're blessed um, in the technology sector that we there's just such a such a deep opportunity to be educated and so on okay. uh, in all industries yeah. how do you i mean that that sounds amazing um and so you know i'd love to to keep across what you're doing there i just you know, I, I wonder with, you know, we're still not seeing as much traction as we'd love with females moving into senior executive roles. And I know there's some excellent examples of situations where we are, but broadly we're not. And I just wonder on your perspective, you know, why do you, why do you think that is the case? Look, I, I, I can only speak for my journey, yeah. um, general availability of numbers right in in the market is is a challenge and continues to be and um we, what we, level so not that's certainly not at graduate level i'm assuming it's not at graduate level so you know one of the challenges though particularly for multinationals is you know that's controlled from the mothership so you put forward cases of you know we want more grads but often a headcount is a headcount whether it's a, a grad or a you know a more experienced person and they look at the the PL and so on. Um, but general availability of, 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 of talent is a challenge. And the only way we're going to solve it is, first of all, the coming through the grassroots uh, angle. But the other one has to be to go and pick talent from other industries and be prepared to invest in them, uh, you know, for, for, for two years or three years or an apprenticeship or, you know, the whole kind of thing. And we're such a generous uh, industry that changes people's lives um, that there are, uh, let's take sales, for example, there might be a great um, female salesperson selling cars at Toyota, right? And 
you know, we've all got it. We go and buy the car from the person. We think, geez, that person's so impressive, so professional, followed up on me or real estate or whatever. And I, but we haven't stopped and said, well, what if we pulled them into our org, gave them two, two, two to three years of development training, you know, assuming they're up for it. Yeah. Um, that is a way of starting to do that. But your, your point about leadership is, is, is also um, taking females in the business because the, the biggest issue in our industry is the stereotyping of those leadership roles you know it's no coincidence if you look back you know the, the you know the marketing manager is female or the hr manager is yes. female or finance manager is female um sales leaders are, are you know kind of male and that and and generally um coos are often male in the industry and, and often they're the ones that end up getting the top gig right yes. it is I feel like it's changing, but I think what you're saying to me is the statistics don't back that up. Um, so it's something we need to think about. Um, very, very important for leadership teams to have a discussion, to make a commitment. Um, WGEA, uh, you know, they were pretty awesome. Like they held us accountable. So um, there's so much you can do yourself internally, uh, but, you know, having an external source that holds you accountable can also make a difference made a difference to us in that journey at VMware what a gift um, your colleague gave you I was just thinking back to the marketing manager um you know what a, what a gift what a gift it was that that marketing manager gave you albeit at the time she may have selected the silent treatment um yeah you know yeah the fact that you, yeah and, uh, and by the way that's one of many examples you know um I have been thinking lately because in my last year at VMware as the AUNZ leader, um, we, we had a very, very important discussion as a leadership team about unconscious bias and whether things were changing. And um, two of my female leaders, my marketing leader and my leader for uh, commercial and channel um, said, look, it's still not changing fast enough. We, we still experience it. And, um, I said, look, we have to talk about this because if we can't, if, you know, please tell us, give us examples and so on, because the male leaders in the room need to understand this better. Mm-hmm. And they used a couple of examples um, where one of them had walked into the, the kitchen and a male member came into the kitchen and the, the, they were the only two in the kitchen and the male member looked, looked her up and down in a way and said, oh, you look gorgeous today, right? And, but the way it happened made her feel so uncomfortable and so unsafe. Yeah. And um, she broke into tears when she talked about it. And the male men on, on the team were just, they were moving in their seats. They did, the, you know, they didn't know where to go, or what to do. And then the other one was, uh, was uh, the other leader was leaving the office one evening and there was a male outside the, uh, the elevators. And as the elevators were closing, there was a wink, right? <laughs> but it, suggest, it suggested wink and yeah. the door closed. Yes. So these are my two, and this is the senior leadership team. So two senior leadership leaders on the leadership team, firsthand experiencing those little things. And it had the most profound impact on the male leaders in the room, right? Mm -hmm. How many male leaders hear those stories? They don't. 
so you know for me i've just been thinking a lot more now that you know male leaders need to be we need to know we need to be brought in to the tent because we can help and we can you know we we particularly those of us in positions of power for want of a better term if we don't know you know, if we don't understand. So that there's a level of deep education you can get by reading and doing online training and doing the 3D training I talked about, but nothing beats the, you know, senior leaders sitting down and really talking about it and, and so on. And the role male leaders uh, can play. Um, you know, w- we have to demand more from ourselves as male leaders, and we, but we have to be brought into the tent if that makes sense. And ask to hear those stories. Yes. Yeah, invite those stories in. Um, I, we've heard so much of your leadership journey, which is extraordinary. Do you think leaders are born or made? Yeah, that's a a really good question. I, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is this term selflessness. Um, I do think the strongest leaders I've worked for and, you know, that I've found the ability ability to really support and develop their journey to more senior roles, um, have a degree of selflessness. Um, Can selflessness be taught or developed is probably a golden question. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think leaders can be taught without question. Um, You have to go deeper with them. Um, I do think leaders need to give a piece of themselves to their teams and and there are a lot of leaders that won't they'll you know they'll do things by the book but they won't give themselves um so but the other thing is um taught means you've you've got to go on a journey Uh, you know if i think about my journey there's there's all the things i might intrinsically have because of my who i am my empathy my you know my life experiences and so on but this concept first of all of a leader understanding that you know, there's the company, there's the team, and there's yourself. And in a, per, you know, great leaders can satisfy all three, but often they don't, they don't meet the same objectives. So what order should you be thinking in, and how do you get that? There's, you know, the obvious. So for me, it's the basics: learning how to recruit well and recruit better, and understanding that the strength of your team is, you know, important. Um, the, the, the great thing that came out probably in the mid 2000s is a realization that you take people and focus on their strengths and help them develop their career on their strengths. You know, this whole thing of let, let's do, let's do our, our performance review. Melissa, great job, made your number, you know, et cetera. Now let's talk about all the things you don't, you know, you need to get better at and so on. And, you know, we flipped that on its ear. We spent 80% talking to you about your strengths, what you did well and how those strengths can take you further. And then 20% of it on areas that, you know, can help you better grow and develop. Um, you know, learning how to performance manage, you know, respectfully, but, but you know, uh, with accountability, um, checking in and, and, and giving regular professional feedback, um, bringing teams together and driving, you know, collaboration and inclusion, um, you know, building a great plan and uh you know situational leadership inside out coaching uh you know crucial conversations how to have a crucial conversation based on different personality types so self-awareness is 
you know, we're so lucky that many of us have had like EQ leadership courses or we've done our personality profiling with Myers-Briggs and DISC and, you know, all of the different methodologies. And then you understand that you can't just have a conversation with somebody who's a little bit different to you in the same way that you have the conversation with everyone and, you know, really understanding the methodology of, of, of having a structured, tough conversation or crucial conversation. Everything I've just mentioned to you are things you can learn. And, you, you know, and the journey of that is greater self-awareness as you go through it. So if you're naturally introvert, introverted, if you're naturally very left-brained and, you know, you just think numbers and, and detail and you don't want to think big picture and you don't want to think about how someone feels, right? Having an awareness that that's who you are is kind of 90% of it. And then you put things in place to say, I know I'm not a feely person, so I'm going to put some things in place to make sure I ask the questions or check. So I think I'm answering your question that leaders can be taught. Okay. So, Alistair, I'm pretty confident that uh, you and I could keep going for hours because, you know, every everything you say, I'm like, yes, and what about this? And, you know, one example there is feedback where, you know, I think we have a, a significant challenge uh, corporately with leaders who, who just don't give good feedback. Um, but we could go down all sorts of rabbit holes. I suspect after this interview that there'll be a queue of people keen to work as part of your team as well. It's been a wonderful conversation. Can I ask the final question that I ask of everybody, which is, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? Brave feminine leadership, um, if, if I think about it, I'll go back to brave feminine leadership is um, seeking to put yourself in situations where you're excitedly anxious. Yes. Uh, di diving into the pool and not just um, sitting on those feelings mm -hmm. uh, and getting the support of the right people um, to, to help you on the journey because good, there are lots of good people out there, good leaders, uh, male, female, all, all races, creeds and, and, and so on. And um, you've got to enlist their help. Extraordinary conversation. Thank you so much for being part of our conversation, Alistair. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks very much, Melissa. You're doing great work. And I, I hope that um, many, many leaders in, across our market get the opportunity to hear, to hear a lot of the wonderful leaders that uh, you're bringing into your program. Thank, Thank you. you.